Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. All right, queens, welcome back. We have Yenny Tarma, and she is a lifelong athlete, endurance runner, endurance coach, CrossFit athlete, and CFL1 trainer. She's going to have to tell me what that is. Yoga medicine therapeutic specialist <laughs> and full-time uh, ERY T500 yoga teacher. Oh, she's busy, isn't she? She specializes in working with an active population and coaches everyone from elite athletes to weekend warriors looking to feel better in their bodies. She's the founder and CEO of Kari Prehab, a company that provides customized mobility recovery and injury prevention recovery services for active folks of all varieties. Yanni has multiple advanced certifications in anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics and is a lead teacher in the Caroline Yoga Teacher Training Program where she has mentored dozens of new yoga teachers. She is also a senior teacher in the yoga medicine program, where she has created continuing education courses on specialty topics like neuromechanics. Ooh, when you say neuro, Karen, I get excited. Hypermobility (laughs) and teaching yoga to weightlifting athletes. She's an enthusiastic writer who has contributed articles Yoga Journal, Healthline, Weight Watchers, Open Fit, Reebok, Thrive Global and Yoga Medicine's online forum, among others, and recently released an ebook on hamstring tendon injuries. Woo! Welcome. Busy. Busy, busy, busy gal. I love it. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Thank Yanny. you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you guys. Yeah, you're, all of these words in your bio is things that we're like, ooh, so let's jump into mm-hmm. something. So tell us about why <laughs> injury prevention through mobility has been your area of focus. Sure. So I'm really, I'm really glad you asked that because that's really like one of the the main things that we do through Kari. And this is kind of a multi-pronged answer because there's really a few, a few different things that can benefit in terms of injury prevention when we do work with with mobility and sport specific mobility. So just to give you like the brief origin story of how uh, Kari, my company, came to be before the pandemic. Uh, big part of my professional life, like my bread and butter, was really working with athletes one-on-one in a therapeutic setting where we would be working either on uh, rehabilitating an injury or improving their performance in some capacity. And the athletes that I tend to specialize in are weightlifting athletes and CrossFit athletes. And the thing about both of those two sports is that uh, they have a pretty extreme and significantly above average range of motion demands. So when you look at something like Olympic weightlifting, these athletes need like insane shoulder and thoracic spine range of motion, really deep hip mobility, really deep ankle mobility. And similarly with CrossFit athletes, they do a lot of movements that have very intense range of motion demands as well. So all the stuff that I just mentioned, the Olympic weightlifting movements, and then things like handstand push-ups and pull-ups and all this kind of stuff. So there's a couple of things that I, that I noticed when I, when I worked with these athletes 
that's the fact that I was seeing the same areas of limitation and the same areas of injury over and over again. And really with these types of athletes, you can count those things on the fingers of, of one hand. It's like rotator cuff, low back, wrists, knees, that kind of stuff. And it looked to me as well that many of the injuries that I was seeing in the in this population not just had a ton of overlap, but many of them were preventable as well. So basically, if we had trained slightly better sports-specific mobility before these athletes started adding on, like layering on volume and intensity with the addition of external load, then we could have basically prevented a lot of, a lot of these injuries. With things like uh, Olympic weightlifting and CrossFit, the training and the movements are so standardized. Like, you know, the Olympic weightlifting movements, for example, have like specific points of performance. So the, the thing there is that when people need to get into those joint positions, but they maybe don't necessarily naturally have access to them, to those ranges of motion, that can cause an issue because obviously that would be like a classic scenario in which an acute injury might occur. Like if you push a, a joint into a position that it doesn't quite want to go into, then you're going to get some sort of tissue damage as a result when you pull the, the soft tissue past the point of the extensibility that they naturally have. So that's one type of injury that can occur as a result of like suboptimal mobility. The other thing that can happen is that somebody might well have access to a specific joint position, but they might not have good muscular support and stability there. So this can become problematic in a different way where if you imagine, you know, somebody is potentially fairly flexible and they have no problem getting their arms overhead, for example, but maybe their joints, their shoulders are kind of like loosey-goosey or not really stable and controlled in that position. So that's the kind of thing that over time starts to become problematic because when we don't have that ability to co-contract a specific joint, which that's just the mechanism through which we as humans uh, find stability in our joints. It's when all of the muscles around the joint simultaneously engage to create that really kind of packed in stable feeling in the joint. So when we don't have that, then that's going to start to create soft tissue irritation over time, especially in a sport, which is like all sports have repetitive movements, like specific movement patterns that people do over and over again. Those tiny little imbalances can really start to cumulatively accrue over time and create soft tissue irritation. And of course, with weightlifting sports specifically, you know, we're by definition adding some pretty intense external load. So we might be doing movements repetitively under load without having this really kind of primed foundation from which to work. Those were the, the issues that I was seeing with this particular athletic demographic was that, you know, people either wouldn't have access to the range of motion that they needed to technically execute the movement, or they wouldn't have the stability and the control in order to then uh, safely and productively layer on the, re the repetition and the external load. So obviously, if we can work to get that sport-specific mobility in place and that joint stability in place before we up the intensity, then that's going to be really helpful in terms of injury prevention. What I love about this is it's just a really good reminder that we don't know how our bodies work. Not very well. Not very individually, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when I, you know, when I mentioned that I saw a lot of the same injuries and the, and the same limitations in people, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of overlap because people are doing the same movements in the sport, but you're exactly right in saying that it's going to be very context 
specific for the individual and everybody's going to have their their own quirks and their own kind of uh, idiosyncrasies about how their bodies work. And the, the human body is so complex as well that often things aren't quite linear in the way that you might expect them to be. So we, we can't say like, oh, well, if like X muscle is tight, then that's going to cause like this kind of problem when you do this specific movement, because it's really just so much more complicated than that. So um, that's kind of one of the things that I really enjoy about doing this kind of work is that there, it's almost like putting together the pieces of the puzzle or uh, problem solving backwards, like a little bit of detective work to figure out exactly what's happening in an individual's body. Hmm. Yeah, love it. And the other thing I wanted to kind of mention about the the injury prevention aspect of things, and this is really more specific to what we do at Kari, but we have also found that deliberately paying attention to a movement or how it feels in your body and in general kind of taking this really mindful and aware approach whenever we're doing any kind of mobility work is something that by definition can improve your your body awareness, which we have a pretty robust uh, collection of research that really strongly suggests that better body awareness is very much correlated with a, with a reduced risk of injury, which if you think about it, that makes complete sense because when you are more in tune with how your body is moving, how it's interfacing with your environment, how the different parts of your body are positioned relative to each other, then all of that is going to predispose you to better performance and, you know, less, less likelihood of injury. And on a similar vein, uh, we know from research also that better body awareness tends to be linked to better pain outcomes as well. And just to kind of backtrack a little bit, a little bit from that, the nervous system is really its primary concern is in keeping you safe and injury free because, you know, back in the prehistoric times, if you were to become injured, that would actually be like a very serious threat to your, to your survival. You wouldn't be able to keep up with the tribe as you, you like migrated around. You wouldn't be able to find shelter or food or run away from predators, all of that kind of stuff. So the nervous system is really like extremely preoccupied with being completely in control of your body and knowing as much as possible about what's happening in the body. So um, this is one of the reasons why we think that having better awareness is also correlated with like not feeling better in, in your body as well, because when you, again, have that good sense of like how you're moving, how things are interrelating to each other within the body, the nervous system is very reassured by that and, you know, keeps things ticking along the way that they're supposed to and doesn't, won't output pain uh, to kind of draw your attention to a specific part of the body. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that's worth mentioning too is that, um, of, of course, when somebody develops the ability to be really like in the moment and connected and aware of, of their body, then for somebody who is an, an athlete, that's going to imp- improve their performance and their and their mental gain significantly as well, that ability to kind of just get really zoned in and into, you know, you might call it a flow state or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yanni, can we go down the pain rabbit hole for a little bit? Can you go with me? Because I'm a yes. little... <laughs> Thank you. It has come to my attention just working with clients, and it has been a recent thing because it's been more than one of my clients where they're dealing with a like a chronic injury or a surgery from an injury, and they're they're still having pain. So first of all, like they go to PCP. PCP says, well, if you want meds, 
this is what I can do, but then I can't give you any more because they're mandated differently now, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. And of I course. feel a lot of my clients have been just bopping around to different people. And is that n- what the whole system is happening out there, or is it just in my office? Or I'm trying to figure out, like, how what no, what I do we do with someone who's <laughs> not – I don't understand where to give them advice or where to go. It, and is this a thing <laughs> that's going on? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm not a medical provider, yes. so I can't mm-hmm. speak with the same like inside knowledge that you guys have of the medical system. But just from what I can gather, I would agree that that is like very much a system wide issue. And basically, I think the, the sort of crux of what you're describing is the fact that, you know, pain medication masks the pain, yeah. but it does not actually treat the, the cause yeah. of the pain. Mm-hmm. Like when you're talking about something like chronic pain. So I think this is such an interesting, such an interesting area. And our understanding of pain as a, as a phenomenon has evolved so much in recent years. So again, to just take a few steps back from that, the sort of model for, that we use to think about pain uh, traditionally is something that has been referred to as the pathokinesiological model. So that's a, a way of thinking that dictates that in order to explain pain, we need to have an observable or a diagnosable mechanical issue. We need to be able to see like tissue damage or a slip disc or a torn tendon or a sprained muscle or something like that. The implication like baked into that model is this idea that when somebody has pain, it's caused by a faulty or incorrect movement. And subsequently, when we're able to correct the movement pattern, then the pain will go away. But just like you said, you have clients who have been injured and like well past the point where the injury is still like a a factor, they have sustained pain. And that like our understanding of that phenomenon has evolved quite a bit because now we tend to think more in terms of the biopsychosocial model of of pain. So Mm -hmm. that still includes in it the the tissue injury, like the mechanical side of things in the in the bio part. But it also takes into account these other factors, the psychosocial factors, Mm -hmm. which we now recognize as being like really important contributors and drivers of pain. So to kind of uh, go go with this, with this example of um, low back pain, this is something that I want to say like 80% is the statistic. 80% of people at some point in their lives deal with low back pain. And a huge percentage of those people have what's referred to as nonspecific low back pain, Mm -hmm. meaning there's no observable tissue damage that we can like pinpoint and sort of pinpoint as the cause of the pain. So we know that there has to be something else going on that that's like driving or maintaining the pain. And, you know, with, with low back pain, we have a really large body of, of research where people have looked at all kinds of different um, factors that can contribute to, to low back pain. And, you know, we've looked at uh, how effective are core stabilization exercises versus general exercise? Is it to do with lumbar extensor strength or is it more to do with lumbar extensor endurance? How big of a factor is pelvic stability? So if you mm-hmm. think about the pelvis as like the keystone for the, for the lumbar spine, how if the pelvis were to be unstable, that would result in a lot, of more, in a lot more unsupported movement in the low back that might be irritating to the, to the soft tissues. So we have all this research and, um, you know, that gives us tons of great clues about where we can start to work with somebody who has low back pain, for example. But the bottom line is that we haven't 
found whatever the key ingredient is for low back pain, we don't know it. Hmm. Um, and in fact, this is where the psychosocial factors come in because we have also research that seems to indicate that the strongest correlates for low back pain or the strongest predictors for low back pain are not even mechanical things like being able to maintain a neutral spine when you're deadlifting or lifting with your legs. But rather the things that are the strongest predictors for low back pain are things like job dissatisfaction and suboptimal socioeconomic circumstances. So Whoa. all of these other far more subtle factors that play into how individuals perceive, perceive pain. And another really uh, crucial factor that's being, that's being talked about a lot more nowadays as well is the, the role of the nervous system in, in pain and how we perceive pain. Because you can really think of the nervous system as kind of like the, the puppet master, like it controls every aspect of the function of our body, including how we feel and experience pain. And one of the ways in which pain can go chronic is that some of the mechanisms that normally under normal circumstances regulate pain in our body can get broken and go kind of haywire. Uh-huh. So what happens then is that, you know, you have, so you have, again, a low, a low back injury. The pain that you're feeling in, the, in your low back is the result of the nervous system outputting a pain signal into that area as a, like a warning to you, like, hey, we're detecting like some unusual stuff in your low back. Please pay attention to this area and like change something about your behavior to make sure that everything there is okay. So pain is like a really helpful warning mechanism. And it's one, it's a mechanism that we, that we want to happen. But what can happen is that, especially in the presence of a longstanding injury, the perception of pain in that area becomes almost like a neurological Uh habit that we get stuck into and then can't get out of. So, and this is what, what, when you have somebody with non-specific low back pain who is going to all these different specialists, exactly like you said, and the specialists are like, well, we did all the scans and we don't see anything wrong. And yes. just to be clear, the pain is not in their heads. Like it is a yeah. very real physiological thing yeah. that's happening. And this is something that's been referred to as a, like central sensitization. Your central nervous system has become like overly sensitized to this perceived threat. And as a result, it kind of maintains this constant but erroneous state of alarm or vigilance around that part of your body. And a few people have really good analogies for explaining central sensitization. So I'll just give you my favorite one, which is from Todd Hargrove, who is a, a really great pain and, and movement guy. I think he has very interesting theories and a couple of, of, of great books about this. But if you remember, uh, I don't even know how many years ago it was now, but there was that guy, the shoe bomber guy at an airport who tried to like smuggle a bomb in his, in his shoe into, into the plane. So this was like a highly specific isolated incident of somebody attempting to blow up a plane with a bomb in their shoe. Mm -hmm. And that single incident has resulted in us like globally as a society continuing to be on alert because we all have to still take our shoes off at the airport Mm -hmm. and everybody just accepts that this is how this is how it is now so we remain on very high alert for this threat even though arguably the threat has passed and is no longer credible and does not appear likely (laughs) to be to be repeated Mm -hmm. but we all accept that this threat somehow is is real and ironically you might even argue that there isn't a single 
airport employee or even a single traveler who believes that there's a serious threat of somebody having a shoe bomb. And yet we all continue having to take to take our shoes off because the system or the institution as a whole remains sensitized to, to this threat. So I think that's a pretty good parallel in terms of how the nervous system might also get stuck into this state of like elevated alarm, even like well beyond the point where the, the actual danger has passed. Yeah, that's a really good example of well, that. But yeah, it's kind of, I mean, the pain is like a trauma. So mm-hmm. if the, the brain's like, oh, I can sense it coming on, it starts to get into that defense mechanism. And you're kind of blowing my mind because the clients Absolutely. I'm talking about is it's back issues is the thing that they just cannot figure out. So that makes so much sense to me as that particular part of our body it's hard to figure out yeah and if you think about how like and that's that's another topic of discussion as well as like why is the spine specifically so prone to provoking these like outsized panic reactions in the nervous system and like nobody I mean there's a few different theories but ultimately like like you said the body is really complex and we Mm -hmm. don't we don't really know exactly but just to kind of loop it back around if you think about somebody who maybe like sees themselves as really like weak or fragile or not physically strong or capable, even the psychosocial factors like, like that stuff can play into how you experience pain. Because if your image of yourself is very like poor or not adaptable or resilient or capable, then that's correlated with feeling pain, like in a much, in a very different way from how somebody who you know, is like athletically competent, really strong. I mean, I, I like to think of, of myself as being like somewhat in that category because I do all kinds of physical activities. I have things that go wrong all the time. Like, you know, like this thing, this thing hurts, this thing feels a little bit stiff. I really try not to get worried about that stuff because for the most part, it resolves itself on its own o- over time. So I think it just, there's, there's so many, so many factors and a lot of the time, with people who do have these chronic issues who like have started to feel really limited in life. Like when you start to identify yourself as like a person who is injured and like, Oh, Oh, I can't do that because I've got, I've got a bad back. Like it really becomes ingrained in, in your identity yeah. and, and who mm-hmm. you are. And at that point, you know, this is maybe somebody who has really lost trust and familiarity with their body as well. So they're, they're potentially very movement avoidant as well, because, they perceive that part of their body as being like weak or broken too. So again, the approach there might, there, there might well be a lot of physical things that you can, that you can do with them. Like, you know, the traditional kind of physical therapy or movement that will be helpful to them. But you really also need to address again, that psychosocial side of things where like, it's about befriending the body again and understanding that, you, you are like a very adaptable organism that's going to respond like loading isn't bad. In fact, when people become very afraid of movement and like really movement avoidant, that actually makes the issue worse because you're just continuing to lose capacity in those, in those tissues. And again, that's just feeding into the sense of threat that your nervous system is perceiving. Like so one of the factors that the nervous system is weighing up is like, do we have good range of motion and muscular control in this part of the body? We don't? Oh, well, this is like very alarming. We need to send some pain there. So in general, just like developing physical resilience and, and capacity is really helpful for pain, which is, I think, one of the reasons why in 
these studies, you know, they've done research on like, I think I mentioned comparing core stabilization exercises versus general exercise Mm -hmm. for low back pain. And they found that both work pretty well. (laughs) And in fact, in the long term, the general exercise might work better because presumably the person when given the choice gets to select an activity that they personally find enjoyable. So they're much more likely to keep up with it and generally become more active in, in life as well. That's so helpful. Thank you for going down the pain rabbit hole with me. And that makes a lot of sense. Oh, sure. We'd love to hear a little bit more about Bespoke Coaching. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Oh, thanks. I'm really glad you asked about that because that's really kind of at the core of what we do with Kari. And it's like our, our flagship service that we that we offer. So this is these are basically custom built programs that we design for individual clients from scratch. And they're completely tailored to their individual needs, their long-term movement goals, their current training routine, if they have one, even their schedule. So we really try to make it as seamless as possible for them to execute and as hyper-focused as possible to, to their needs. So the way that it works is that we'll generally do like a pretty long hour or so intake with somebody over Zoom and just really get to grips with what they're, what they're experiencing. And that includes all the physical stuff. Uh, like we, you know, we want to know where, where it hurts and where, like what the range of motion looks like and all that stuff. But then we also want to know like, what are their stress levels like? Or do they hate their job? <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Like what is their life? Like what's the backdrop against which they're of their life, which is where all of their movement and their, and their training happens because just like we just discussed, that stuff is pretty is pretty relevant and really ends up playing into into all of that as well. Then, based on the information that comes up in that in that intake, we put together a twelve week program for them. But the style in which we program is really fluid and designed to evolve, kind of in lockstep with the client's progress. So we only give them two weeks of programming at a time. And in that time, we get feedback from them every day about how the specific movements that we're giving them feel. So in effect, the whole program ends up being kind of like an extended intake because we're constantly getting more and more input about how they're responding and what things feel challenging, what things feel easy, which then gives us more information about how to progress their, their programming. So we kind of do it in these two-week batches based on the, the interaction that, that we have with them in most cases, allows us to be like very fluid and adaptable and continuously learn more about what's happening in their, in their bodies as, as we go. And yeah, I kind of, I love the, the detective work aspect of it and trying to kind of, it's like a riddle or a puzzle that, that you have to solve. And, you know, people are sometimes very competent, very aware in their bodies and know, can give you a lot of detail about what they're experiencing and other people are less so. So I really kind of love the individualized nature of it too, where you get to interact with all these different people who are, you know, like placing their trust in you and you you get to create something that's really unique for them. So I I love that, that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely can tell that you know what you're doing. So, (laughs) (laughs) so Yenny and and all these creations and important work that you do, how do you live out the fit philosophy, balancing performance, health, intellect and just a few minutes for yourself sure so i will say that a lot of that for me like performance health and taking time for myself a lot of that does revolve around exercise (laughs) and movement just because it's something that i've always enjoyed through my whole life and i've personally found movement to be a really great stepping stone to like a better awareness and understanding of myself so 
yeah, something that really, that comes very naturally to me. And I'm also fairly type A, so I, I feel like I'm naturally driven to try to perform and achieve both like athletically and, and professionally. So doing all those things is a sort of a form of self-care for me <laughs> in, in many ways. But at the same time, I, I know that it's really important to, to offset the intensity of all those things with like unstructured downtime and all of that stuff, which is something that comes less naturally for me so I definitely um, make time to I try not to work on the weekends although of course I'm a small business owner so that mm-hmm. particular line gets a little blurred every yeah. once in a while <laughs> all the time yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly and I do try to incorporate like a mindfulness or meditation practice I'm lucky enough to be an instructor on this incredible platform called yoga medicine online so I do a lot of the meditation practices there from my from my fellow instructors and I've always been like somewhat competitive and goal oriented with sports and physical activity. Just recently, actually, I started playing hockey, (laughs) which has been so awesome and so fun. But the reason that I'm enjoying it so much is that because it's just for fun and there's absolutely like no goal involved. Like I'm obviously trying to get to get better at it, but it really, really is just for like enjoyment and fun. So that ends up being something Mm -hmm. that is kind of like in contrast to some of the, some of the other stuff that I do. (laughs) I love it. Well, you're definitely talking about some of the, the stuff we love, the neuromechanics, the neuro stuff. So thanks so much for sharing all the information around this topic. And yeah, thanks for being on. And we'll be sure to have all your resources. Thank you so so much for having me. They can learn some more. Mm -hmm. Bye Queens. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FitForQueen. Hashtag fit for a queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.